morning, church. How are we doing today? Everybody excited to be here? Glad to be here on Father's Day. Good day. I want to say happy Father's Day to all of the, the dads in here today. We're thankful for our fathers who uh, have taught us and led us in our lives, and uh, we want to definitely celebrate that today. Also, I want to celebrate Vacation Bible School with you guys, and specifically, I want to thank our staff and all the volunteers that helped pull that off. It was a huge undertaking, but they did an incredible job with it. We saw over 200 kids um, each night who were getting getting uh, more of the gospel and learning more of the gospel of Jesus and who that is and uh, who he is and what he's done for us. And so it was a great week. Um, it's kind of funny that uh, I, they we always rotate each night who would teach at the large group times. And uh, they asked me what night I'd like to teach. And I said, how about Tuesday? And they were like, okay, that's fine. Here, here's your lesson for Tuesday. And it's a little outline that give you a direction of which way to go. I got mine. It was David and Goliath. So, um, you know, we've been in David and Goliath for about six weeks now. And somehow that was the one that I chose. Um, all morning long, I thought that's funny. Nobody else has. But, um, but anyway, that's okay. I'll laugh myself. And, uh, and, uh, but it, it, it did end up being a great week. And we're very thankful for what God has done what God is doing um, in the lives of our children. Uh, today, we're going to continue in the Faith and Fear series. We've been looking at faith and fear through uh, the lens of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And we're going to continue that today. Then we're going to have one more week next week, and we'll jump into a new series after that. Um, but, but today, we're going to go through this chapter, 1 Samuel 17, and really look at the heart of this story. There's so many takeaways that you can get from David and Goliath, so many things that you can learn about God and about how we respond to God, how he responds to us, the things that David has shown us that we've looked at throughout this series. But today I want to be careful before we get out of this series to really look at the heart of this, this chapter because everything in Scripture points us to Jesus. Everything in Scripture tells us about Jesus. It all points to one moment in time. I told you a couple of weeks ago about how all the life events and circumstances of my life really pointed to us starting this church. And we kind of realized that as we were starting the church, um, uh, life experiences, circumstances, giftings, different things all pointed to us starting this church. But it's the same way with the Bible. It, it all points to Jesus. Every story, every verse points us to Jesus and tells us the gospel. And so before we get out of David and Goliath, I want us to go through this chapter and really see how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the, the, what Jesus has done for us is really spelled out in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And so let's open our Bibles or read it off the screen if you don't have one. We'd love to give you one at the Next Steps table if you don't have a Bible. But today we're going to be reading verses 4 through 11 to begin with. And so story of David and Goliath. It says in verse 4, A champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, which is a little over nine feet. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels or over 100 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and, on, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to, to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. 
on hearing the Philistines' words, listen to this, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the other Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Let's pray and we'll jump in. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and it's active. Thank you for the power that is in it. God, I pray today that that power would work in our hearts. I pray that it would find good soil as you sow good seed into our lives, God, and it would produce a harvest in our life 30, 60, 100 times what's been sown, Lord, just as your word tells us. And so, God, we, we, we look forward to seeing what you have for us today in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I want to go through and really look at where the gospel is seen in this story. And I started off by telling you a little, a little story of my own. The other night, it's sometime during this, this week, I can't remember exactly which night it was, but um, I was sound asleep. It was like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, I was at that stage of sleep where you like drool on your pillow, that kind of sleep. Um, so I was out of it. Uh, and about that time, uh, the alarm, the house alarm started going off. And I don't know if you've ever been that asleep and then woken that suddenly. But I woke up. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was going on. I just heard the alarm. And then it hit me. Somebody's broken into our house. And so I jump up, and I just took off running. And I just started running through the house. I don't know where I was going. I don't know why I was even doing that. I, didn't, I had guns like right beside me. I didn't grab a gun. I didn't have a baseball bat. I had nothing. I was just running in the house defenseless. I guess if somebody had really been there and it wasn't a false alarm, um, they would have just killed me because I had no way of defending myself against them. And my ninja skills are a little rusty. So um, I would have just been dead. And so I ran through there completely defenseless. I was, I was literally going to fight uh, someone uh, without even knowing what they had or what they were doing. I was defenseless. And the thing I want you to see about these Israelites is, is they were defenseless. They, they, they weren't able to fight Saul. In fact, the first thing I want you to see out of this text and out of the scripture we just read is that we, like the Israelites, face an enemy that we cannot defeat. We, we can't defeat two enemies in our life. And that is one is sin and the other one is death. We cannot defeat those enemies. Those enemies rule and reign over every human being who has been born um, from Adam and Eve onward. Those first, that first creation, when it fell, it has infected all of us. And so, uh, and it's put us in a situation where we cannot defeat the two enemies of sin and death, not on our own. When you look at the Israelites and they were facing Goliath and the Philistines, that they were facing an enemy. But you and I also face two enemies every day, sin and death. We can't defeat sin and death, and they truly rule over every human being. I want you to see this over in the New Testament, from Old Testament to New Testament. I want you to see how it really says the same thing. And if you look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 17, you'll see this. It says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike, alike are all under the power of sin. So everyone's under the power of sin. Listen to this in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, not one righteous person. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then look at verse 23. Over in chapter 3, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point I'm trying to make is this. You and I are all in the same boat in which sin and death has mastery over us. It rules us. It reigns in us and through us. If it's left up to us, there's nothing that we can do to defeat those two enemies. 
And we're all in the same situation. The Israelites were unable to defeat the enemy that they face. We're unable to defeat the enemy that we face. We have no hope in our sin and in uh, death apart from Christ. And so listen to verses 12 through 15. He says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. In Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I want you to see, one, our hopeless state, but I want you to see, two, that Jesus, like David, was an unlikely savior. When you look at David, he wasn't someone that you would just have picked to go fight the battle. He was young, the youngest, in fact, of all his brothers. He was the smallest. Um, when, when Samuel went and, and he began to uh, anoint David as king, they had to go find him out in the shepherd's in the field because uh, he was a shepherd. Nobody really thought that he was the one who would come and be the king of Israel. Certainly they didn't think that he was going to be the one to deliver them from the Philistines, and he was an unlikely hero. The same thing is true with Jesus in that he was an unlikely hero, an unlikely savior. Just because if you look at the way he was born, he was born in a manger. Um, he, there was nothing, there were no, um, like, uh, frills and fancies about him. There was nothing that really would draw us to him other than the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear it as Isaiah the prophet prophesies this in Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3. It says, he grew up before him. This is Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born, prophesying about the coming Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, there was nothing that we just looked at him and said, man, that's the Savior. That's him. There was nothing like that that pointed us to him. In fact, Saul, the king who didn't do anything about Goliath, was much more of that king. He was taller than everyone else. He was good looking. All of those things that David or that Jesus was not, according to Isaiah. It says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And so we know that Jesus himself was rejected when he came to earth by most of humanity. Most of humanity didn't see him and go, oh, there's the Savior of the world. Most of humanity saw him and rejected him, just like many people reject him today when they hear about who he is and what he's done for us, and they still turn their backs to him. In verse 4, though, it's almost like you can write, but under verse 3 and as you go into verse 4 it says this surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted I want to point out to you that what Isaiah is saying is that he took the pain that we should have taken and, and he set us free from the condemnation that should have been ours and so when we look at Jesus we can see that he was punished that he was stricken that he was afflicted so that we wouldn't have to be and then in verse 5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. So we got peace, he got punishment. He got the punishment that we deserved, and we got the peace that he deserved. And so it was a, a flip-flop when Jesus died on the cross for us. And it says, by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are being made whole. By his wounds we are being saved. By the wounds that he took on the cross. 
for us. It says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we look at this passage, what we see is Isaiah telling us hundreds of years before Christ was born what Christ was going to be like and what Jesus was going to do for us. And we see um, him basically telling us that our iniquity, our sin, all of the, that, that junk and mess of our life was put on Christ. He died for that. He took the punishment for that. He took God's wrath for that. So that you and I could be set free. He, he became condemned. He became cursed so that we could walk away free and walk away blessed in the power and purpose and presence of God in our life. That's what Jesus has done for us. But he was an unlikely savior. He wouldn't want, wasn't one that you would have just naturally looked at and thought, that's him. But he came in the power of God. And we know that. No one can even say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit working in his heart. And so we see that God does draw us to himself, and he calls us to be a part of his ministry. And much like David, many of us are the unlikelies, right? Uh, Jesus, when he came and he began to call the, the people to himself, he began to call the 12 disciples to himself. He called fishermen like Peter, like John and James. He called fishermen to himself. He, he, he called tax collectors, people that never would have been thought of as, as being the first ones into the kingdom that was going to be established by the Messiah. People, who, they never thought that they would have been the ones. It's just like he does today when he calls roofers to be preachers, right? Um, I think I was much better at roofing than I am at preaching. But the thing that God saw is he said, no, I put a call on your life. I want you to do this. The good thing for us this morning is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, he tells us very clearly that he uses the, the, the lowly things to confound the wise. He uses the, the, the weak things to confound the strong. In other words, he takes those unlikely things, he puts his spirit in them, and he begins to do a good work through them. And so here's the good news for us. If we find ourselves seeing ourselves as being unlikely to be used by God, if we find ourselves not really feeling like we're that gifted to be used by God, then really all that does is puts us in a position to be used by God to produce a miracle in someone else's life or maybe even in our own life because God likes to take the unlikely and use them for his glory. Because when he uses the unlikely, the one who, who, who nobody would have thought could have, could have got it right, and the one that no one would have thought would have done it for God, that, that's when he gets the glory. And so he loves to take those unlikely people, unlikely people, and use them for his glory and for his honor and might. Listen to 1 Samuel 17, 20. It says this. David now has gone and brought the supplies, or bringing them to him. It says in verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army, listen to this, as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. This is kind of funny if you think about it, because here's all these Israelite soldiers going out shouting the war cry, hooping and hollering like they're about to go kick some tail, right? And, and they've been doing this, though, for like 40 days, and they haven't done anything yet. And so they're just really going through the motions. They're like, I'm not going out and fighting that nine-foot-tall dude. I'm not going to do that. But we're going to shout and yell and act like we are. And so they make all this commotion, but they don't go do anything. And, and so when we look at this, they were really 
helpless. They, they were kind of hopeless on their own. And, and how little did they feel knowing that I'm hollering and I'm excited and I'm going to do, do this and I'm going to fight and this is going to be awesome and we're going to win. And they know in the back of their mind, I ain't going out there. And so we need to see that they were helpless and hopeless. And we, like the Israelites, are helpless and hopeless if we're left to our own abilities. We can't save ourselves. I started going back to the gym a few weeks ago, and now I've got to start going back to the gym again because I quit a few weeks ago after I started. But when I got to the gym, I hadn't lifted in a long time, and, and I got underneath the, the bench press, and I put the weight on that I used to warm up with. And as I began to do it, I was trying to do 10 reps just to warm up. And at the 10th one, I found myself doing this, right? I was shaking like this, trying to push the weight up. And, and as I was shaking, I saw my right hand was a little higher than my left hand. And for some reason, people tell you, if you look at your left hand, it'll go up. So I started looking at it. It didn't do anything but keep shaking. And so I literally couldn't get the weight off. It finally just sank back down on my chest. And, and I realized how weak I'd gotten. And it was really embarrassing, to be honest with you, the amount of weight that packed me that day um, and just ended up on my chest. But th that's how we are oftentimes. Left to our own abilities, we're, we're hopeless and helpless when it comes to getting the weight of sin and death off of our lives. We can't do anything. We can try every, everything we want to try. We can try religion. We can try to be better. We can try to be good. We can try to be good fathers, good mothers, good employees, good bosses. But the thing about it is we're hopeless and helpless left to ourselves. In fact, if you look again at Romans, I want you to see this in Romans chapter 3 again. What you begin to see is, is Romans telling us the exact same thing. In 3, 19 and 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you can obey all the rules you want to obey. You can do all the things you want to do. But at the end of the day, you're still in your sin. Unless you've given your life to Christ, you're still in your sin. You're still in death. You haven't been made alive in Christ. He's saying the only thing that religion, or what I call religion, is a rules-based rules without a relationship. The only thing that religion can really do for you is remind you of your sin. It can't remove it. We can try as hard as we want to, but at the end of the day, we're still sinful. We're still under the power of that sin, and we're still under the power of death. When we look at this, we have to see that apart from Christ, we're as hopeless and helpless as, any, as they were facing Goliath. We're that hopeless and helpless against sin and against death. Look at verse 21. It says, Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their line, lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. But listen to this. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. The next thing I want you to see is that we, like the Israelites, were in a place of bondage. We couldn't set ourselves free from the power of sin. Sin not only had its power in causing us to, to be separated from God and causing us to be spiritually dead, but it's now got us in bondage that we can't break free from. But, but the good news is that Jesus has set us free from the power of sin and death. By taking that sin on himself, 
by dying the death that he died, by being put in that tomb and rising three days later through the resurrection, what we begin to see is that God has accepted his sacrifice for sin once and for all. So he raised him from the grave. He, now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And we know that he sits at the right hand of the Father and has sent the Holy Spirit back to us, the power of God back to us, so that now the power of sin can be broken over our life. So we no longer have to allow sin to have mastery over our lives. We can overcome those addictions. We can overcome our selfishness. And 10 out of 10 people are selfish. Don't act like you aren't because 10 out of 10 people are selfish. And the thing that we are able to see though is God begins to give us a new heart. He begins to transform us and he breaks the chains and the bondage off of our life of sin that has held us back for so long. And he sets us free to become the new person that he created us to be. The Bible is clear and tells us that he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That means you can live a new life apart from the sin that is held you back and held you down for so long. You can be set free from that sin through the power of Jesus as you pursue him and are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We had no way of overcoming sin and our bondage to sin except for the work that Jesus did on the cross for us. Let's skip over a few verses now and look at verse 38. David has now told Saul he's going to go fight him. Saul's finally said, yeah, David, go fight Goliath. And we read in verse 38, it says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried to walk around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. The next thing I want you to see in, in how we um, relate to the Israelites, how David foreshadows Jesus, is this, that David defeated Goliath the only way that he could. We need to see this. Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death the only way that he could defeat them for us, and that is through the cross and the resurrection. See, Jesus could have overcome the world any way he wanted to, but it was only through the cross that we were able to see that, that Jesus has made a way for us to have victory with him. And so the cross and resurrection, the cross where he took our sin upon himself, where he took our, the wrath for that sin from God, where he was condemned, and now we don't have to be. The resurrection where God said, I accept his sacrifice, and he raises him to his right hand. And listen, Jesus is sitting down, not because he's tired, but because he's finished, because he's done everything that he had to do to set us free from sin and give us life. Jesus is sitting because he's done. And now he sent the Spirit back to us so that we can be alive. And so we need to see that Jesus died the only way that he could have in order for us to have sin. It was prophesied through the Old Testament. In fact, if you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, after Adam and Eve have sinned, God takes an innocent animal and he kills this animal. And he basically makes animal clothes for, for uh, uh, Adam and Eve. And he clothes them with the, these to hide their nakedness, to hide their shame. And God was establishing for us the pattern of how sin would be forgiven, how our shame would be taken away was through sacrifice. And so from Genesis 3:21, at the very beginning of the Bible, at the very beginning of sin, God shows us that it's gonna be through his grace and mercy that he forgives us. He shows us that it's gonna take an innocent life 
to be sacrificed and blood shed for us to be forgiven, for us to be set free from sin. And you can follow that trail of blood all the way from Genesis 3.21 all the way to the cross because that's where it's telling us. He's telling us, look, I want you to know when, when I send the Messiah and he dies for you, when you, the Christ comes and he dies for you, I want you to understand why. Listen, it's hard to understand John 3.16 apart from Genesis 3.21 and the following sacrifices that take place. Because if we don't understand that God had already established that, that that was his way of setting us free, his way of, of giving us forgiveness, but doing justice at the same time, then we can miss the whole thing. But when we see it and track it all the way through the Bible, we see that God is telling us very clearly that this is how I'm going to justify you, how I'm going to take away your sin, is I'm going to do it through the final sacrifice, which was Jesus, the final sacrifice. Listen to verses 41 through 47. It says, Then, meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. So it's getting serious now. They're about to fight. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the animals. He said, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give you the carcass, carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's why we exist, is so that the whole world would know God. All those who gathered here, all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. I want you to see what David does here. He steps in between the Philistines and the Israelites. In the same way, Jesus stepped in between us and sin and death. See, there was a chasm between us and God. There was a, a chasm that had been created by sin, a separation that existed because of our sin. Jesus stepped between us and bridged over us, uh, gave us a bridge into the presence of God. Now we can come boldly before his throne of grace to receive mercy. We can come into the presence of God because of what Jesus did for us as he bridged that gap for us. See, we couldn't lift the sin. When I was under that bench press and all that weight was coming down on my chest and I was, I was helpless to get it off, I had what's called a spotter. If you've ever lift, lifted weights, you most likely had a spotter who stood over me and he was able to lift the weight off of me that I couldn't lift off of myself. And I want you to see this morning that that's what Jesus has done for us. When we put our faith in him, he lifts off the sin. He takes it away. It's separated from us, never to touch us again. We're made pure and spotless, just as Jesus was pure and spotless. We are righteous before God, meaning right with God. We are justified, meaning it's just as if we never sinned. We've been made whole in Christ. Our, our, as God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And so we have been set free from the sin as Jesus stepped in between us and Satan and sin and death. He became a bridge for, from us to God. And he also was a substitute for us as he took our place on the cross. Verse 48, it says, As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. 
reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. The next one is this, David defeated Goliath once and for all, just as Jesus defeated Satan once and for all. See, you go and if you read the book of Hebrews, you get to Hebrews chapter 10, and it's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices. And what it says in there is it says these, these priests make these sacrifices day after day after day. They make the same sacrifice. And he says the reason that they make that sacrifice day after day after day is because that sacrifice could never take away sin. If, it was, if that was the case, that the, the death of an animal could take away the sin of a person, then what he's saying is they would have stopped a long time ago. They wouldn't be sacrificing day after day after day. And it says the priests stand day after day making these sacrifices. But what we read and what we understand about Jesus is that he was the final sacrifice. Once and for all, he gave his innocent life for our guilty life so that we could be made free, so that we could be made whole, so that we could be made alive. He took our place. He became that final sacrifice. So now there's no more need for another sacrifice. And what I want you to see is so many of you, listen, and so many times I've done this too. We go through life trying to make sacrifices to God, trying to, trying to do more, trying to be better, trying to clean ourselves up. And, and that's great and that's good when the Spirit of God is working out of you the salvation that you have. But so many times we're doing those things trying to earn the salvation that God freely gives us through Christ. And we can't really have victory over sin until God has taken the sin away and he's put his spirit inside of us. The Bible doesn't say work in your salvation. It says work out your salvation. Work out what God's already put in you. And so we need to see this, that it was done once and for all, final, complete. In fact, when Jesus was dying on the cross, one of his last sentences was, it is finished. It is done. It is over. In other words, he had done everything needed for us to have salvation, for us to be made new, and for us to have a relationship with God. All religion or rules without a relationship can do for you. All it can do for you is remind you of the sin that you have. But it cannot take away guilt. It can't take away condemnation. Only faith in Jesus can do that. But when we put our faith in him, he takes it away. He makes us spotless. He, he takes away, listen, not the little politically correct sins that we all will admit we have, but the deep, dark sin that nobody wants to be broadcast on the screen this morning. Right? Because everybody's got that. Right? Not, he, he died for for our lustful thoughts. He died for our, our sexual immorality. He died for all of those things, those things that we don't want to talk about. Jesus died for those, and he can take those away, and he can do like the woman who was going to be stoned by the men, and he said, Where's, where are they who accuse you? After he had told them to go away, and he, she said, there's no one here, Lord. And he says, then neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. And she walks away free and forgiven, but knowing God has done something in me that's changed me, and I'll be a different person from now on. That's what God does for us and through us as he works in us. The good news for us is this. When we come to faith in Christ, he begins to work in us and work through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus, he, he sent the Spirit back so that he could work in us now. And so when we come to faith in Christ, the Bible teaches us this, and it's been the experience of people who've given their life to Christ, is this, that when we become 
followers of Jesus, when we put our faith in him as our Lord and our Savior, he gives us his spirit, and the spirit gives us a new heart with new desires and new wants and, and a new way of walking and a new way of doing life. He begins to change us from the inside to the outside, just one step at a time as the spirit of God works in us. Listen now to the last one. It's in verse 51. It says, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from the sheath. It says, after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the, that S word right there, that road, to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. The last one I want you to see that is so similar to what Jesus has done for us is that we, like the Israelites, have to make a response to what the Savior has done for us. See, David's victory gave the Israelites courage to take new ground for that kingdom. We need to see that Jesus' victory gives us the courage and the power to take new ground for the kingdom of God. He's given us the, 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 the ability through the power of his spirit to do that. And we take new ground for the kingdom of God. We take back from the kingdom of darkness what belongs to the kingdom of light. Every time we'll take a next step for God. When he prompts us to take a step, we step. And every time we do that, we're taking back a little bit more of his kingdom. A little bit more from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Every next step that we take. And every person in here, listen, you have a next step to take. God will show you the next step that he wants you to take in your relationship with him. As he leads you deeper and deeper into a love relationship with himself. He, he shows you that. He'll reveal that to you. Everybody in here has a step to take. We just have to ask God and allow God to, to put it in our heart what that is. And, and I want you to see that, that God uh, is wanting you to take a step for you, for your growth, for you becoming more like Christ. He's trying to get us to take that next step. And for some people in here, there's no doubt in my mind that with this number of people in a room, somebody in here or people in here, your next step needs to be salvation. Your next step needs to be coming into a relationship with God, accepting all those things we talked about that he's done for us, taking our place, taking the wrath of God, taking our sin, giving us life. You need to experience going from death to life. And maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've heard the gospel, the good news before. And you say, well, I've heard it. But here's the thing. Has it ever changed your heart? Has it ever changed your heart? How are you different because you follow Jesus? See, we can, we can say we mentally assent to that, that, yeah, that's great, I, I, I want to be saved. But the question becomes, have I surrendered my life to him? Have I given my life? Is he the, not only the savior of my life, but Lord of my life? How is my life different because of my relationship with Christ? If there's been no change in your life because of uh, a relationship with Jesus, then we need to ask the question, is there a relationship with Jesus there? Is it there or is it something that we've been maybe tricked about our whole life? We need to see that to know Jesus means growth and to grow means change. And God wants to do that in our hearts. The question for us today is have I accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life? Have I accepted the invitation 
that Jesus is giving me. And today my hope and my prayer is that if God is knocking on the door of your heart, drawing you to himself, you would say yes to that relationship. If you're saying yes to that relationship, we wanna help you take your next steps following salvation. And we wanna celebrate with you your new life and going from death to life. We wanna celebrate that with you. And so right now I'm gonna ask you in front of everyone in this room who's gonna celebrate like crazy, you're going from death to life, your salvation, if you've never experienced that, right in front of everyone, I'm gonna ask you, if today's the day of salvation for you, you would say yes to Jesus for this, the Lord and Savior of your life for the first time, would you raise your hand and say, that's me, I, I need Christ in my life. I need to know Christ, I need a relationship with Jesus, amen. Stick him up high. We want to pray with you, if that's all right. It won't, it won't take long, but we want to spend a little bit of time with you to help you take your next steps of faith. Who else? You're here today and you'd say, I, I know I need a relationship with God. I haven't had that, but I need that and I want that. Who's here today that would say, that's me, that's my next step? We've got just a couple more minutes. Listen, the step after salvation is baptism. The Bible's clear that after salvation, we're to be baptized. And so I want to challenge you to be baptized if you're a follower of Christ and have not been baptized. And I wanna go through real quick to answer the question of why should I be baptized? We're doing baptisms next Sunday. Why should I be baptized? The very first answer is because Jesus said so. Jesus said so, he made it very clear in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 that we're to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 38, after Peter preaches the message where 3000 people are saved, they ask, what should we do? And he says, be baptized every one of you. And so the next step was baptism. And so Jesus says so. The question here is, have you been baptized as a believer in Jesus? Number two is, it, it, why should I be baptized? It's, it's as your decision. It should be a baptism of your decision. Baptism comes after you make a choice to follow Christ. It's your statement that your life's been set apart and wholly devoted to Jesus. Have you been baptized as a public profession of your decision to follow Christ? And the third one is this, we should be baptized as a response to what God has done. Baptism doesn't cause your conversion. The water doesn't save you. It's faith that saves you. It's, faith, it's, it's all about God's grace working in your life through faith. The faith is what saves you. The question is, have you been baptized as a result of your faith in Jesus? So have you been baptized as a believer? Have you been baptized as a public profession of your decision to follow Christ? Have you been baptized as a result of your faith in Jesus? If the answer to any one of those is no, then your next step's baptism. According to scripture, this is the one next step that I can tell you, we, we don't need to even talk about anymore. It's just an act of obedience to be baptized. Have you been baptized as a believer, as a follower? Have you been baptized as your decision? If the answer is no, then your next step is to be baptized next Sunday. So here's the thing I wanna ask. We've already got a list of people who wanna be baptized. Whether you're on that list or not, so maybe you walked in today not thinking you were being baptized next Sunday, but you realize 
Baptism is the next step that you need to take. What I want to do is I want to show of hands. I want you to raise your hand if next Sunday, whether you came in here knowing it before this message or not, but next Sunday, you know my next step is to be baptized. I want you to raise your hand, stick your hand up high in the air, and let us celebrate with you. Your baptism is, is next Sunday. Amen. Amen. For some, it may be heart and soul, going through heart and soul. It may be getting in a connect group. It might be serving as a connector. It might be inviting someone to church. It might be sharing your testimony, your Jesus story with someone at work or at the ball field. It might be serving in the community. And here's another next step that I don't want you to take lightly. And we're about one minute over. I want you to take this lightly. Some of you, your next step needs to be that you allow someone to pray with you. And you allow someone to walk with you through a situation, maybe a circumstance that you're facing. And we have people here who want to pray with you. In fact, our prayer team is going to be over here to my left or your right at this door. And if you would like to be prayed for today, for something going on in your life, we can help you in any way. Something's going on in your life. We want you to get up and move to that door. In fact, I'm going to pray right now for all of us. But if you need prayer for something in your life, while I'm praying, I'm going to ask you to move to that door, and our prayer folks will meet you over there, okay? So prayer folks, if you'll head that way, I'm going to pray, and guys, you get up and move as you need to. God, thank you so much for the work you do in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would move in people's hearts now. Let them be real with, with where they're at, and let them move closer to you, God. Draw us closer. God, I thank you that your word is true, that when we draw close to you, God, you draw close to us. And so, God, I pray that every one of us would take a step closer to you. God, that today we would take a next step that brings us closer to you and more in line with your will. God, would you just continue to work in a mighty way, continue to do what only you can do, change hearts and lives. God, we love you. I thank you for every person in this room, every person in this church. And I pray your hand would be on them, your power, your purpose, and your presence in their life. In Jesus' name we pray.